Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're going to begin reading in verse 31 as we continue our series on Luke. God's holy, inspired, and errant word speaks to us and says, at, the, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, during the quarantine, Sarah and I took the opportunity to uh, work in our backyard and our back patio, and and it became a delightful spot for us to drink our coffee in the morning, especially during the early weeks when we were quarantined. Uh, The weather was so nice in the mornings, and you could actually stand sitting out there for, for an hour or so. And it spawned a new hobby for me. Uh, as I sat out there, I, I began to notice the birds that were coming into the back, backyard. And, and uh, so I've taken up bird watching. And uh, I had never paid much attention to birds unless I was shooting at them. And if that bothers anybody, don't worry, I rarely hit any because I'm a terrible shot. Um, but, uh, of course, you know, you, you, we, have, we had some flowers in some pots out there for the first time in a long time. And we had some hummingbirds, and they're fun to watch, and everybody enjoys seeing hummingbirds zipping around. They're, they're a, a marvel to look at. And uh, there's a red-bellied woodpecker that lives in these oak trees out in front of the house, and sometimes he would fly over near me, and I could spot him with my binoculars. But one species that I've come to enjoy seeing in the backyard is a uh, really simple, simple little bird, the house finch. I had never paid any attention or noticed this little tiny bird, this kind of reddish intent, and, and I, was, got, I got to where I was looking out for them and enjoyed seeing them when they appeared in the, in the backyard. And then, of course, the mean old mockingbirds would run them off often, and that just made me angry. So I, their plight became uh, important to me. Well, Jesus uses some bird imagery in our text today. And he uses it to lament the fact that people were not paying attention to his call to repentance and faith. And Luke has been trying to stress that to us through his record of Jesus' life in this this chapter 13 and surrounding that we're looking at here recently. And Jesus warns of the tragic consequences of that refusal to pay attention to him. Now, if you never noticed the house finch before, 
you know, your life is going to be okay. You know, it's not a big deal whether or not you notice house finches. But ignoring Jesus has terrible consequences. It is fatal. And I want each one of us today to notice Jesus, to notice Jesus. And I want to draw three things out of this passage today that we should notice about Jesus that, that is on display here in this short passage. First of all, the sovereignty of Jesus. Then secondly, the service of Jesus. And then finally, the sorrow of Jesus. Well, first let's look at his sovereignty on display here in this passage. Verse 31 tells us that the Pharisees come to him and warn Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him. Now, who is Herod? There are several Herods in Scripture, and uh, this is not the, the Herod that ruled during Jesus' birth. That was Herod the Great. This is his son, Herod Antipas. He's also known and in the New Testament as Herod the Tetrarch, because Herod the Great's uh, territory was divided between his four sons. So Tetrarch is ruler of four quadrants. He ruled one of those quadrants. And so he was, he's known as Herod the Tetrarch or King Herod. He was a king, uh, not a real king, but king of Galilee and Perea. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, you've got the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River connects them. Well, Galilee is all this area over here to the west of the Sea of Galilee, and Perea is all this area that's east of the Dead Sea. On the other side of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem, and that's Judea, where Pontius Pilate was the governor. So Herod the Tetrarch, or King Herod, he ruled this little area, but under the Romans, of course. He was just a, a governor under their authority, so he really wasn't a king at all. Well, Herod Antipas, uh, this man who says wants to kill Jesus, is the one who had John the Baptist imprisoned and ultimately, uh, ultimately beheaded because John the Baptist was telling Herod Antipas that he shouldn't have gotten divorced from his first wife and then married his brother's wife. And so Herod threw John in prison, and then, of course, Herodias, the wife, manipulated through, his daughter, through her daughter to have John the Baptist beheaded. And Antipas was the one who did that. So Herod has sent this death threat to Jesus through the Pharisees because he wanted Jesus out of his territory, possibly because Jesus reminded him of John the Baptist and he had that weighing on his conscience and probably didn't want more political unrest in his territory. And the Pharisees were glad to deliver the message. You know, it is odd that the Pharisees are saying, you need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. Well, they wanted to kill Jesus. They're no friend of Jesus. Well, they did want Jesus to leave Herod's area and move into Judea because that's where they had more authority and power. And they wanted to deal with Jesus on their own. They wanted to kill Jesus. Herod and the Pharisees are trying to manipulate Jesus through fear. Perhaps if Jesus hears that 
the king wanted to kill him, he might run for his life. Well, of course, it doesn't work. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. And to call someone a fox was to say that they were sly and underhanded. So Jesus sees through the manipulation that Herod is engaging in here. It's also a designation, uh, you're also designating someone to be insignificant and worthless to call them a fox. See, Jesus is not worried about Herod or the Pharisees. Basically, Jesus says to them, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you're not going to stop me. You don't have the power to thwart me. For the foreseeable future, I'm going to keep on casting out demons and healing people. I'm going to do that today, and I'm going to do it tomorrow. And it won't be until the third day, which means sometime in the future, that I finish my course. Not Herod or anyone else is going to take Jesus' life. John 10 tells us, that Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But Jesus is not intimidated by Herod and his threats. He's in the Father's hands, and he's executing the Father's will. Even when Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate questioned him, and Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So Jesus is not intimidated by Pilate either. Even when Jesus died on the cross, he died because he yielded up his spirit. He yielded up his spirit, Matthew 27, 50 tells us. He laid down his life willingly. No one took it from him. Well, these three Herods that we, well, there's the three Herods you do mention that are mentioned in the New Testament, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and Herod Agrippa. Um, first you have Herod the Great, and then you have his son, Herod Antipas, and then Herod Antipas's nephew is Herod Agrippa. There's going to be a test on this afterwards, so everybody needs to pay attention. Not really. Well, they all opposed Christ and his church. They were tools of Satan. Of course, Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, heard about Jesus being born, and he slaughtered all the children around Bethlehem, trying to kill Jesus. And, of course, Antipas, as we mentioned, killed John the Baptist, and now he's making threats against Jesus' life. And his nephew, Herod Agrippa, we read about in Acts, he persecuted the early church. He had the disciple James, John's brother, put to death, and he had Peter imprisoned. And, of course, Paul encounters him there in the latter chapters of the book of Acts. See, all these petty little kings opposed Jesus, and they were all unsuccessful at destroying Jesus and his church. They all tried to thwart his mission, but it was not possible. And the same is true today. 
As the great hymn, The Church's One Foundation says, The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. You see, Herod Antipas was a king with quotation marks. Jesus has no quotation marks. He is the king of kings. He's got all authority in heaven and earth. He will carry out his plans unthwarted. He carried out his plan in, that, in the days we're reading about here. He marched to Jerusalem, as Luke records for us, in order to lay down his life. And no one could stop that. No one could thwart that mission. And, and he will complete it. He's going to return again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. It's Revelation 1, 7. You see, Jesus is the king of kings, and he's got a plan he's carrying out. We read about that wonderful doxology there in Revelation chapter 5. He is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. That's, that scroll is God's will, the Father's will, the plan of the ages. He is carrying it out so his people will not be lost but saved. And no power on earth can stop that. Well, that's the sovereignty of Jesus on display there. And we should take great comfort in the fact that he is carrying out his plans and we should trust him because he will bring it to fruition. Well, second, we see the service of Jesus. The next verse, verse 33, says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He says, yes, I'm going I'm to carry out my healing and my casting out demons today and tomorrow, and then I'll finish my course. Nevertheless, there's a caveat there. See, Herod cannot kill Jesus but his death is inevitable because it is his mission to lay down his life. Jesus, he says, must go towards Jerusalem. He must perish there. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. It is a necessity for him to do so. It is inevitable because it is the will of God. He said in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, with the will of him who sent me. Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was a servant. Though he was the king of kings, he emptied himself of such honors and served by laying down his life as a ransom for sinners. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. J.C. Ryle wrote, Why then did he not resist his enemies at last? Why did he not scatter the band of soldiers who came to seize him like chaff before the wind? There is but one answer. He was a willing sufferer in order to procure redemption for a lost and ruined soul. 
He had undertaken to give his own life as a ransom that we might live forever. And he laid it down on the cross with all the desire of his heart. He did not bleed and suffer and die because he was vanquished by superior force and could not help himself, but because he loved us and rejoiced to give himself for us as our substitute. He did not die because he could not avoid death, but because he was willing with all his heart to make his soul an offering for sin. Forever let us rest our hearts on this most comfortable thought. We have a most willing and loving Savior. It was his delight to do his Father's will and to make a way for lost and guilty man to draw near to God in peace. He loved the work he had taken in hand and the poor sinful world which he came to save. Never then let us give way to the unworthy thought that our Savior does not love to see sinners coming to him and does not rejoice to save them. He who was a most willing sacrifice on the cross is also a most willing Savior at the right hand of God. He is just as willing to receive sinners who come to him now for peace as he was to die for sinners when he held back his power and willingly suffered on Calvary. Yes, nevertheless, he must go to Jerusalem because that's what he came to do and he delighted to do it. And we should rejoice in that as well. And then finally, we see here the sorrow of Jesus on display. He says in, this, uh, in the last two verses, 34 and 35, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You'll notice that Jerusalem, Jerusalem is repeated, and I've shared this with you numerous times before, but that's a Hebraism, a way that, of expressing something in, in the language, uh, in the Hebrew language. When you repeat something, it, it shows a warmth of feeling. It's a term of endearment. Examples include when David finds out his son Absalom has, has died, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He is heartbroken. And you remember the episode where Martha and Mary are, uh, have Jesus over to eat and, and uh, Martha's doing all the work and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha says, you know, Jesus, tell Mary to get up and help out. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but Mary has found the most important thing. He's being kind to Martha. He's showing that he cares for Martha, but it's a general rebuke. And then when Peter says, you know, if everybody else abandons you, if everybody else denies you, I won't do it. And Jesus looks at him with pity. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. Again, a term of endearment. He loves these people and cares for them. And of course, the greatest example is when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never known separation from the Father until he was on that cross. 
and he cries out. So when Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he is expressing a broken heart over the people's refusal to come to him. In fact, that city had a long-established habit of rejecting God's messengers. It was the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. But Jesus longed to gather them up in the safety of his arms. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Now that image is throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. You see that wing bird imagery. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 17, 8. 36, 7. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. 57, 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. 61, 4. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. 63.7, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. In 91.4, he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. See, Jesus longs to have them come to him. He has been willing to protect them, but they were not willing. The original Greek uses the same verb for Jesus and the people of Jerusalem. He, it's, we could translate it this way, two different ways. He, said, he could, have, could have said, How often was I willing to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Or, you could do it this way, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not. The verb there is about is the will, what you will to do. We were studying Galatians on Tuesday night, and the study talked about Paul, where he says he was called before he was born to the task that the Lord had for him. Well, you know his life, he obviously persecuted the church for a long time and, and was uh, one of the chief persecutors of the church and was trying to stamp the church out. But then, of course, the Lord intervened in his life on the road to Damascus. And it made us all think about our own stories, how we came to the Lord, and to, and to understand that even beforehand, even before maybe there's a certain date you remember, I mentioned a few weeks ago back in May that 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 was a day 40 years ago that the Lord finally broke my will and, and I surrendered to Him. And that date was important to me for a long time. But then as I started thinking about God and his, the way He works in people's lives, I began to see even before that date, the Lord had worked on me. The Lord had brought people into my life. I can distinctly remember one time at a retreat. I was probably 12 years old. And the preacher was preaching, and, and I felt such a deep conviction of my sin. 
and the tears were welling up in my eyes and I pushed it down. I resisted and I left that camp and I'd never repented until maybe a year later. But I resisted the Lord and that's what these people have done. They have heard Christ repeatedly preaching in the streets. They followed him around and he was telling them the truth and yet they would not repent. He longs for them to come to him. See, it goes with what he said before, what we looked at last week in verse 22 and following about the narrow door. He's saying you've got to come into the narrow door while, there's, while, the, while the door is open because there's going to come a day when that door is shut and you'll lose the opportunity. If you don't enter while the door is open, if you continue to resist the Lord in your life, you may wait too long and then the door will be shut. You'll want to come in at that point, but it will be too late. You see what Jesus says there in 35. Because they were not willing, he says, Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is forsaken, he says. Well, the temple was where God's presence was localized in that era, in the Old Testament times but no more. Their house had been forsaken. And in just a matter of years, the temple would be destroyed by the Romans. They refused God and his messengers, putting some of them to death. And now the door is shut, Jesus says. And he's lamenting that fact. Well, back to Herod. Herod is a microcosm of what is happening to Jerusalem. Herod had heard John the Baptist preach repeatedly because he had him arrested and he would hear him. Mark 6 says, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee and that's when his stepdaughter does the provocative dance and he vows to give her whatever she wants. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he won't back down. He had heard John the Baptist repeatedly, but he would not repent. He had heard about Jesus and was curious about him as well. And when they finally had the opportunity to meet Jesus, Pontius Pilate, uh, the the Pharisees and the other religious leaders brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate finds out that he is from Galilee, which is Herod's territory. Herod was in Jerusalem, so Pontius Pilate sends Jesus over to see Herod. And Luke 23 tells us, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Jesus would not respond to him at all. One commentator remarked, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. It reminds me of King Saul. You know, King Saul laid in his, in his reign over Israel after the Lord had rejected him for his disobedience. 
after the prophet Samuel had died, towards the end of his life, the Philistines assembled a great army, and Saul gathered up all Israel. And when Saul, it tells us there's 1 Samuel 28, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. What a sad, sad statement that is. He no longer had God's word. I want to tell each one of us today, don't let that door be shut. Don't turn a deaf ear to Jesus' call to repentance and faith because there will come a time when those who refuse hear that call no more. He concludes by saying, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this lament here in, in verses 34 and 35 was probably, he, Jesus probably said it later after he already entered Jerusalem. Luke includes it in this section because he's talking about Jerusalem and he's organized the material in that way. So this is not referring to the triumphal entry. Rather, Jesus is talking about his second coming. When everyone will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now, hopefully, many inhabitants of Jerusalem will joyfully say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there will be some who say it unwillingly who will bow the knee before the King of kings and Lord of lords, not because they want to, but because they cannot deny that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's saying, you'll see me once again at the end of time. Will it be too late? See, the place you want to be is tucked underneath the wings of Jesus where there is security. And that's not a sentimental image. This is what Jesus longs to do for you. It's a metaphor divinely chosen to convey God's longing in Christ for his people. And the question I would give you all today is, have you allowed him to tuck you snugly under his wings? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love of which you have loved us and the wonderful display we have in Christ of your great love and of your determination to save a people for yourself. Lord, I pray that everyone here would be in that number, that you would grant repentance and faith to each one of us here. May we not ignore those calls to faith and repentance, but every day, Lord, every day we pray that we would turn from our sins, and continue to live by faith in you. Lord, we pray that we would be your disciples and that we would be tucked under the shadow of your wings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.